We are still dealing, as most of you will remember, with the first two verses in the twelfth chapter of Paul's epistle to the Romans. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Now, this, as I must remind you again, is a most important and a most crucial statement. Some of the greatest tragedies in the history of the church and in the lives of individual Christian people have been entirely due to the fact that they've never grasped the teaching of these two verses. This is one of those great junctions, if you like, one of these great connecting links which uh, connect the great doctrines of the Christian faith with the living of the Christian life. Junctions are always important and always dangerous places. You can foul the lines and it can lead to endless and grievous trouble. A junction is always important. It's particularly important in the scripture. And there have been great tragedies, as I say, because people have never understood the meaning of this, therefore, and the mercies of God. In other words, here we are being introduced to the living of the Christian life. It's the introduction to the remainder of this great epistle. Now, uh, we've been looking at this, and what I've tried to show you is this, that we are told here why we should live the life, the motives. And it is the great doctrine, the therefore, and the mercies of God, the element of gratitude. That is why we should live the life. And then we've gone on to start considering how we should live the life. The manner of the life, as well as the motives to the life. And uh, we've seen that this word present is an important one. It's a, lit a, lit a liturgical word in a sense. It's a technical term connected with the Old Testament offerings and sacrifices. And we are to present our literal physical bodies as a sacrifice to God. That's how he puts it. And then we saw at the end last week that he um, adds these qualifying terms, qualifying in the sense not of limiting but of defining uh, to the sacrifice. It's got to be a, a living sacrifice, not a dead one, but a living one and a continuing one. It's got to be a holy sacrifice, free from all blemishes and faults and diseases. And it has got to be one that is acceptable to God and uh, pleasant in his sight, a kind of sweet-smelling savor, rising up into the presence of God and giving him pleasure and satisfaction. Now then, we take up at that point. Because the apostle goes on to say, this further thing, he says, which is your reasonable service. Now, here's the most interesting statement, and we must be clear about this. We've got to look at both the words, service and reasonable service. Now, what does he mean by service? Well, here again is one of these technical terms that are used in the scripture. If you like, you can translate it by the word worship. 
the service of God means the worship of God. I believe I did quote last uh, Friday night, uh, just at the end, that statement Paul makes in writing to the Thessalonians in the first epistle in the first chapter and verse 9. How you turn to God from idols to serve the living and the true God. Now that really means, in a sense, uh, to worship him. Because whatever your God is, you serve that God. You worship him, and you worship him by the whole of your life. Not merely in public services, that's a part of it. But the whole of your life is, in a sense, an offering and a worship and a service of God. Now, let me perhaps uh, quote what I've already read to you at the beginning. Uh, The same term, as it is used by the same apostle in writing to the Philippians. Did you notice that 17th verse? in the second chapter of the epistle to the Philippians. Yea, says Paul, and if I be offered upon the sacrifice and service of your faith. It's exactly the same word. I joy and rejoice with you all. What he's doing there is to use this sort of picture. He says, all right, you've got your sacrifice ready to offer to God. Now, under the old dispensation, it was the custom uh, to pour various things on the sacrifice, sometimes blood, uh, before it was offered. And Paul says, if necessary, I'm ready that my blood should be poured out and offered upon your sacrifice and service. It's a part of their worship. They're bringing their sacrifice, which is themselves, uh, to offer to God as an act of worship and of praise. And he's ready to be the kind of libation, if you like, the poured out substance on the offering. But it's interesting that he uses that same uh, word, service. And then you've got another example of it in a most interesting way in that same epistle to the Philippians in the third chapter, in the third verse, where he says, we are the circumcision." who worship God in the Spirit. Now, it might very well have been translated there, who serve God. In other words, worship and service are interchangeable terms. Well, we actually do that, do we not, in practice ourselves. You may say that you're going to uh, a religious service, or you may say that you are going to go to an hour of worship. You see, we're going into the house of God to worship God, or we're going to a service in the house of God. So that in, in our practice, we tend to do the same thing. Well, now that's the idea that he's got here. This offering of our bodies to God as a living and a holy and an acceptable sacrifice is, as it were, an act of worship. The whole of our life is to be a worship of God. And that's the point that he's making here. But now he goes on to describe it as a reasonable service. What does this mean? Well, it's again, as I say, a very interesting term. If you just take it as it uh, is here in the authorized version, you might uh, come to the conclusion that that what he's saying is this. Now, what I'm asking you to do is something which is very reasonable. There's nothing unreasonable about it. In fact, it is very reasonable in the light of what God has done for you, in the light of the mercies of God, in the light of the sacrifice of his Son, what is there more imminently reasonable than that God should ask you to give yourselves to him in order that you may live a life to his service and to his praise? 
All right, well, you can include that, if you like, in the meaning of this word reasonable. That is included, but it actually doesn't mean that. It is a term that he uses to describe further to us the character of this offering of our bodies. You see, he's told us that it is living, he's told us that it's holy, he's told us that it's acceptable to God. And he says, in addition to that, it must be reasonable. Now, what does this mean? Well, here I say is, is the most interesting word. It really means something that is rendered by the mind. It means something mental, something spiritual. Let me again illustrate it to you by the use of the same word somewhere else. I do trust that as we do this sort of thing, you all are being introduced to a method of studying the scriptures. There's nothing better than to explain scripture by scripture. Always get an analogy in the scripture and then you'll always be safe. You compare scripture with scripture. That, that is the supreme way, it seems to me, always of studying and of expanding the scriptures. So I take you to the first epistle of Peter and to the second chapter and the second verse. We read that chapter last week, but we didn't come on to this. Now he says, as newborn babes, I'm reading here from the authorized version. As newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word, that ye may grow thereby. But that isn't really a very accurate description. It's all right what it says. It's perfectly true. It is the sincere milk of the word that he's talking about. But he didn't actually say the sincere milk of the word. What he said was the sincere, unmixed, unadulterated, spiritual milk. Not milk of the word, but spiritual milk. That's the better translation of what the apostle said. Or if you prefer, he says, desire the sincere, spiritual, or thought-nourishing milk. Now that's it. Now that's exactly what he is saying. It's a milk that nourishes the mind. It's a milk that it nourishes the thought. In other words, it is something mental. It is something spiritual. He's contrasting it, of course, with the ordinary milk, cow's milk, and so on, which nourishes the body. He says, now, I'm telling you to take milk which nourishes the mind. Not a material milk, but a spiritual milk. That's the contrast. And it is precisely the same word that we've got here in this first verse of the 12th chapter of the Epistle to the Romans. He says it is your spiritual. It's to be a spiritual or a mental service or worship of God. Now, you see the significance of this. Again, he uses these words in order to present us with a contrast. He did that, we saw, in connection with the word living. Not a dead animal, not a dead body. It's got to be living. And it goes on. Not once, and then that's the end of it. No, no, it's perpetual. Well, here again, he's contrasting it with what? Well, obviously, he is contrasting it with something which is merely external. Something which is ceremonial. 
something, if you like, which is mechanical. It's not to be that. It is uh, not to be outward, it's to be inward. It's not to be mechanical, it is to be living. It's not to be merely a part of a ceremony or a ritual. Its whole characteristic is that it is inward, mental, spiritual. And this, as I think you will see, is a, a most important point. And it's a point that needs to be emphasized very much at the present time. There is undoubtedly a tendency for people to multiply the external forms in connection with religion. People always like, the natural men always like something spectacular, something visible, something external. This has been the great fight that the Christian faith has had to fight from its very beginning. The perpetual tendency to externalize worship as over and against this inner spiritual worship. Now, it's a very fascinating thing to read the story of that uh, throughout uh, the running centuries. You see, you get it beginning in the New Testament. The so-called Judaizers, they were there. It's quite natural. They'd been brought up as Jews, and they were accustomed to the ceremonial and the externalities of the worship of God in the temple. And they found it very difficult to break with that and to come to this more spiritual, inner, mental worship. So you find the fight actually in the New Testament itself, and there's a great deal about it. But then when you go on in the subsequent history of the church, you find that the fight continued. Now, I think that at the present time, you will all be interested to, to realize that this is something about which we really should know something. Take, for instance, the Roman Catholic Church. And at the moment, I'm, I'm not saying all this primarily with an intention of criticizing what she's done. I'm simply giving you historical information. The Roman, the, the church, the church, even before she became Roman Catholic, even before that, but still more after that, she was face to face with this problem. As Christianity grew and spread, it of course grew amongst people who had been brought up in pagan circumstances and conditions. They all had their religions. Everybody has a religion. And there were many pagan religions. Some of them were called mystery religions. But in any case, they all had these pagan religions. And all of these laid great emphasis upon the spectacular, upon the visible, upon the external. And so when these people became Christians, and remember that many of them uh, became Christians as the, as the result of a kind of mass movement, when the Emperor Constantine decided to become Christian and to make the Roman Empire Christian, all these people came in automatically. Not that every one of them individually was converted, not at all. They came in as a mass. It was an official action. So all these people came in. And when they were confronted by this simple unadorned, spiritual, inner worship of the Christians, they felt lost, and they felt they were missing something. And the result was that the leaders of the church, they made a compromise. They said, well, we must give these people something to look at. They've been accustomed to it. So you can trace the history of how increasingly you depart from the simple worship the spontaneous, simple worship of the New Testament to an increasing ceremonial and a priesthood 
and the altar which had been amongst the people removed far away. And there it is only certain special people who are allowed to offer the worship to God and the rest just sit back and watch the spectacle. Now that's how it's all come in. They took over many even of the pagan ceremonies and dressed them up as it were in a Christian form. They took up many of the Christian days, as you may know, these holy days that are referred to in, in various of this uh, apostle's epistles, such as that to the Colossians and so on. They took over these things. as they, Their term was that they baptized them into Christianity. Now, there's the argument, you see. Which are you really doing? Are you baptizing these things into Christianity? Or are you degrading and debasing Christianity and turning it into a sort of semi-paganism? Well, we've got our views on these subjects, haven't we? All I'm trying to show you is that all that is implicit in the Apostle's use here of this word translated reasonable. This is mental. This is spiritual. This is internal. This is the antithesis, in a sense, to the external ceremonial. So he puts it like this. That it is a service to God such as befits the reason. It is a spiritual offering. And not the offering of a mere rational animal. It is the worship of a rational man. As distinct from that of an irrational animal. Now, there are many other contrasts here too. You see, the apostle is fighting against a legalistic attitude towards the worship of God. And this is still, I think it's one of the major fights today and will certainly be in these coming years. You are aware of all these trends. The new interest in Rome, isn't Rome changing and so on? And she is, of course. She's trying to bring these ceremonies of hers to us in a manner that will be more appealing. They've decided, for instance, not to do it only in Latin any longer, but in the vernacular language of people, it'll make it more attractive to them. But the bait is, of course. And there's a hook inside it, and that is the ceremonial, and all this external idea of worship, which is ultimately, I say, a legalistic matter. Now, let me read you from the end of that second chapter to the Colossians, where the Apostle puts it in a very striking form to us. Now, having put out again, you see, the great doctrine of salvation and the work upon the cross, he says in verse 16 of Colossians 2, let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of an holy day or of the new moon or of Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. Let no man beguile you of your reward in a voluntary humility and worshipping of angels, intruding into those things which he hath not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind, and not holding the head from which all the body by joints and bends having nourishment ministered and knit together, increaseth with the increase of God. Wherefore, if you be dead with Christ, from the rudiments, which by which he means elemental principles, or the kind of coarseness which belongs to everything primitive, from the rudiments of the world, why, as though living in the world, are you subject to ordinances? Touch not, taste not, handle not, which all are to perish with the using, after the commandments and doctrines of men, 
Which things have indeed a show of wisdom in will, worship and humility and neglecting of the body, not in any honor to the satisfying of the flesh. Now that's nothing but uh, a kind of disquisition on this theme that I'm holding before you in terms of this one word here in the first verse of, of Romans 12. You see, there was the fight in the church at Colossae and the neighboring churches. These men had come along with an admixture of Christianity and philosophy and those old mystery religions and a bit of Judaism mixed in. It was a most extraordinary hodgepodge of different teachings and religions. And it sounded very wonderful, of course, as these quack things always do. And there were people who were tending to follow them, feeling that they've got something extra here. They were being told, you only do this, you see, and carry out these rules and regulations and all is going to be well with you. That's always the charm about that kind of religion. That's why so many people from time to time have gone into the Roman Catholic Church. That they have said so. You can read the autobiographies of people who have said this. They say, you know, your Protestant evangelical faith in particular, it seems to leave it all to me. And who am I? I find this too much for me. But here's Mother Church. She says, come to me. We'll do it all for you. So you sit back and you look on at the great spectacle. And you're assured that everything is being put right for you. That, that's the thing, that's the thing that the Apostle's dealing with. He said, now that's legalistic. And we must never view our services in that way. And you notice that he has a remark there about the neglecting of the body. Now let me give you just one other quotation so that we may see this thing quite clearly. In 1 Timothy, the first epistle to Timothy in chapter 4, you get this at the beginning. Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry, and commending to abstain from meats, which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. For every creature of God is good and nothing to be refused if it be received with thanksgiving, for it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. If thou put the brethren in remembrance of these things, thou shalt be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished up in the words of faith and of good doctrine, whereunto thou hast attained. I am trying this evening to be a good minister of Jesus Christ by calling your attention to these very things. Now, what am I saying? Well, it comes to this. He's dealing, you see, with what you do with your body. And he is telling them, don't listen to what these false teachers tell you to do with the body. Because they will tell you things which are quite irrational. They're unreasonable. They're things that your mind should reject. Now, he says, I want you to offer a spiritual worship, a mental worship. A worship which is with the reason. It's a, the kind of offering that befits a man. What, well, then he's contrasting it, you see, with all this wrong, false teaching. There are those who would tell you even to mutilate your body. It's often been taught. The wearing of a camel hair shirt. Or even, some have carried it to the extent of literally scarifying their body. Others have misunderstood the whole teaching and have almost starved themselves to death 
What they were trying to do was to deal with the impulses and the drives that come up out of the body, the thing we were talking about last week. But their method of doing that was starving the body until they became seriously ill, some of them, and almost died. Now, that is irrational. That's not New Testament teaching. And there, you see, they went so far as to say that if you wanted to be a true Christian, you must never get married. Now, they taught this quite seriously. They said, it is impossible for a man to be truly Christian if he's married with a man or woman. You mustn't do it. And they were not allowed to eat any meats at all. Why? Well, they said, if you eat meat, you're not only doing what the world does, but meat is dangerous and it stimulates certain parts of your body and your appetite. So if you really want to live the Christian life and present your body to God, never eat any more meat. Only eat herbs and so on. That's what he's dealing with in Colossians 2 and in 1 Timothy 4. And that is what he puts in one word here in this chapter. You will find, of course, when we get to chapter 14, that he does work it out a bit. He expands it and sums it up in that great statement in the 17th verse. The kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. Now then, here he's emphasizing this that your presenting of your body has got to be always rational. It mustn't be something irrational. You must be able to justify it. It must be consistent with the picture of men that is given in the New Testament. So it's not a mere matter of external forms and ceremonies or mutilations of your body. No, no. The thing, he says, is something mental, spiritual, something inward and not outward. In other words, some people have needed to be told throughout the century in the church that sacrifice must never be an end in and of itself. There are always people who are ready to do this, as I said, to give their body to be burned. And they feel that there is some merit in sacrifice per se. Wasn't it this last week we read in our newspapers of some poor men doing that, I think, outside the Pentagon in New York? You see throws petrol or whatever it was over his body and burns himself to death, as he thinks for his religion, for his principle. Well, now, people have done that, not in an extreme form always, but in various other forms. Now, the apostle is saying it's a complete contrast to all that. That's irrational. That's unreasonable. So he's putting his emphasis on this positive spiritual presentation of our bodies uh, to God that he may use them to his glory and to his praise. Let me sum up all this. By putting it in terms of that which you read in the first chapter of the Gospel according to St. John, our Lord's encounter, you remember, and conversation with the woman of Samaria. You get exactly the same point there. The woman saith unto him, I'm beginning to read at verse 19, the woman saith unto him, Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain. And you say, that's to say the Jews, that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship, or if you like, to serve God. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh, when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship, serve the Father. You worship, you know not what. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour cometh, and now is, when the true worshippers, the true servers of God, shall worship or serve the Father in spirit 
And in truth, for the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. That is exactly the contest that the apostle has in his mind here. You see, she was thinking in those old terms, you worship God in this mountain, or you must be in the temple in Jerusalem. It was the whole trouble with the Jews at that time. That's what they could never grasp from our Lord. They felt that he was against God. They felt he was a blasphemer and an imposter. Why? Well, because he was teaching that you could do all this without the temple. Without your priests and high priests. That was the scandal. And it was the scandal of the Apostle Paul and all the apostles and the early Christians. They said these people are irreligious. It was simply because they didn't do it in the old, visible, external, ceremonial manner. They said it's entirely inward and spiritual. God is spirit and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Mountain, temple, Jerusalem, none of these things matter. This is the thing that matters. Now, that's the very point that the apostle is making here. And, of course, it's, as I say, a point that has been of crucial importance right away through. It's very interesting to know that in the second century of the Christian eras, in the second century A.D., the commonest charge that was brought against the Christians was that they were atheists. Now, how do you explain that? That Christians should be charged with being atheists. And this was the explanation. The pagans worshipped a multiplicity of gods. The Christians didn't. They only worshipped one god, and they did it in this inner manner. They could do it without temples. They could do it without actually taking burnt offerings. And without taking sacrifices, they seemed to be doing it all together inside themselves and in their minds. And they didn't need ornate buildings and all the ritual and the ceremonial. And the, these pagans looking on, they said, these people, they don't believe in the gods, they're atheists. Now, all that you see is because of this stress and emphasis that the apostle puts here on the way in which we present our bodies to God as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, ah, and above all in a spiritual, in an inward, in a mental, in a rational manner. Very well, there's the principle. How is this to be done? I've got to raise this at this point in order again that I may just uh, stress and lay down before you uh, the great principles of all this. There's the fundamental controlling principle. But now, in practice, how do we do this? How am I to present, what do you mean by saying that I've got to present my body to God in this mental, rational manner as my worship of God? Well, let me divide it up into negative and positive. Remember, we are dealing with practicalities here. We are dealing with our use of the bodies that God has given us. How do I carry all this out with respect to my body? Well, the first thing, obviously, is that I must refrain from sin. I mustn't sin with my body. I needn't elaborate that. That must be obvious to everybody. But let me go on to certain other negatives. I must not use my body selfishly. 
Now here we are coming to the heart of it. I mustn't regard my body even as my private property. You see, that's what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 6. You are not your own, you are bought with a price, and you don't even own your body. It is the temple of the Holy Ghost. So I must learn that I don't even own my own body. It's not at my disposal. I mustn't use it for my own end. You work this out for yourself in details. I'm simply putting down the principle. If you like, you can put it like this. You mustn't pamper the body. Because if you pamper the body, you're taking a wrong view of it. The body is not meant to be pampered. The body is given us in order that we may express ourselves and the personalities and the powers that God has given us. The moment you pamper your body, you're paying too much attention to it. So, you get a statement like this, you see, who's adorning, let it not be that outward adorning, of patting the hair, of wearing of gold or apparel, but let it be that inner man of the heart, in that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. That's 1 Peter chapter 3, I think you'll find verses 7 and 8 are somewhere around about there. It's read in the marriage service, and very rightly so. That's the kind of adorning. Now, the moment you see you live for the adorning of your body, you've elevated it, you put it in the first position. It was never meant to be there. There is, as I explained last week, an order in these matters, spirit, soul, body. You don't live for the body, and you don't live for the glory of the body. Some people have greater temptations than others at this point. We all have different kinds of particular temptations, but if you've been given a particularly shapely, comely body, well, you be careful that you don't turn it into an idol and you don't begin to worship it and that you don't tamper it. All that is involved here, remember, it isn't yours, it's God's. And the moment you tend to live for the glory of your own body, you are transgressing this very appeal, this exhortation which we are considering together here. Well, then, of course, isn't it obvious that uh, still less must we abuse the body? And here's an important thing. The abuse of the body is grievous sin. You see, because it isn't ours. It is the temple of the Holy Ghost. And therefore, if I'm to offer my body uh, to God as a sacrifice, which is living and holy and pure and acceptable in his sight, and that nothing comes up to God but a sweet savor, and if I'm to be reasonable in all this, well, clearly, I must not abuse my body in any way, and we can do it and do do it, unless in many ways, you can abuse your body by giving it too much food. You're to give it food. The body can't live without food. But if you give it too much food, you're abusing it. Again, you're allowing it to become too important. You're allowing it to dictate. You're allowing the appetites to take charge and to take control. They're never meant to do that in a rational being. And the new man in Christ is rational. The unbeliever is always irrational. But we are made rational. Well, very well, we must use our body in this rational manner. Sufficient food, but not too much. Our Lord dealt with this, not with surfeiting, he says, not with surfeiting, 
You mustn't eat too much. And then, of course, the same applies to drink. Any sort of drink, if you like. But drink in particular can be a terrible abuse of the body, not in surfeiting and drunkenness. That's the opposite of what the Apostle is telling us here. If you drink too much alcohol, you violate your body, you knock out the highest part of it that God has given you, your higher centers and control, and you're abusing your body, and you're no longer able to offer it as a sacrifice of the type that has been described by the great Apostle here. If this is something, he said, that you mustn't do. These are the negative aspects. And may I add, and it has to be added at a time like this, the same applies to sex. There's nothing wrong in sex. But again, if the element of excess comes in, it is bad. And the world today is living for sex. Nothing can be more terrible. It's worse even than the kind of worship of the body. You remember the ancient Greeks, they worshipped the physical form. They went mad at it. Their games were really designed in order to do that. It was the worship of the body. And you see specimens in the British Museum and elsewhere of this perfect human frame. They lived for this. They worshipped. They were wrong. The body is not to be worshipped. The body is to be presented to God and used entirely to his glory and to his praise. In other words, let me put it bluntly and plainly. Sex, I say, is given to you by God. But if you use your body and your sex to indulge yourself and your own appetites, you are not only violating this, you are violating the constitution of men. You mustn't use the body or any part of the body for your own selfish gratification. Everything that we've been given is to be used to the glory of God. Do all things to the glory of God, says the Apostle. Whether he eat or drink or whatsoever he do, do all to the glory of God. And remember, the same applies even to sleep. Sleep is essential. We can't go on without sleep. And if you don't get proper sleep, well, every part of you will suffer and your work will suffer. Above all, your worship of God will suffer. Sleep is essential. But too, too much sleep is bad again for the body and therefore prevents your prevent, presenting it to God as this living, holy sacrifice which is acceptable in his most holy sight. Christian people, we've been rather tending to forget this aspect of these matters, haven't we? You see, you can become too spiritual in a wrong sense. You can never be too spiritual. But if you isolate the spiritual and cut it off from the physical, you've fallen into very grievous error. You mustn't neglect your body. You mustn't make too much of your body. Well, let me go on and put that in the positive form. Positively, then, it means this. That we keep our bodies in as healthy and as fit a condition as we can. It is not to be ultra-spiritual to neglect the body. Many saints have done that. And their work and their ministry has suffered as the result of that. The body, as Robert Louis Stevenson put it, is regarded as brother ass, and he's been treated as such. That's wrong. You mustn't regard your body with contempt. You mustn't say, I'm such a spiritually minded person, I've got no time to pay any attention to my body. And the result is that many great saints, you see, men who could have been very great use, having neglected their body in this way, and some of them, as I said, have even mutilated it by overindulging in fasting and things like that, 
They've seriously limited their usefulness and have crippled their own ministries. It may sound unspiritual, but it's what the apostle is saying. Keep your body fit. Keep your body healthy. So you're not being very spiritual if you don't take any exercise. You should take exercise. You should keep your body fit. The fitter your body, the fitter will your mind be and your understanding. And whatever you're doing, and you're doing all now to the glory of God, men sana in corpore sana. That's it in a sense. There it is in its positive form. A healthy mind in a healthy body. These things interact. Don't neglect your body. It'll get you into trouble. Keep it fit. You've got to present it holy to God. Not crippled, not only working 50%, not struggling and failing. Now let it be as fit as you can, but don't live for physical fitness. Be fit in order that you may serve God, and in order that he may use you to his glory and to his praise. And then in practice, we use all our members, all the members of the body to the glory of God. We put them all at his disposal. Now we've seen the apostle uh, doing this very thing in detail for us in chapter 6, which I quoted, I think, last uh, Friday night. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. And in that same sixth chapter later on he repeats it all. He says, being then made free from sin, you became the servants of righteousness. I speak after the manner of men because of your, because of the infirmity of your flesh. For as you have yielded your members, servants to uncleanness and to iniquity unto iniquity, even so now yield your members, the same members, as servants to righteousness unto holiness. In other words, the principle is, I say that we give our bodies to God at his disposal, for his service. Keep it as fit as you can, and every part of it, let it all be used to the glory of God. And you can, you can use every part of your body to the glory of God, sex included. Sex can be, can be used to the glory of God, as a man can eat to the glory of God, and drink to the glory of God, and walk to the glory, and everything he does. If you think that sex can't be used to the glory of God, you've misunderstood the whole of this teaching. And you're not in a Christian position. It is a God-given gift. And as every other part of the body can be used to the glory of God, so can that. Never abuse, but always use to the glory of God. As using, says the Apostle again in 1 Corinthians 7, and not abusing. That's the principle. And you'll find that it runs as a theme and a motive right through the whole of the New Testament teaching. Now then. Let me conclude this matter for this evening by giving you a quotation from that great preacher in the early centuries of the Christian era, John Chrysostom, the golden-mouthed orator, as he was sometimes called. And he was one of the great preachers of the early centuries. And he puts all this in a very beautiful way, I think, in these words. How can the body become a sacrifice? That's the question. How can my body become a sacrifice? And here's his answer. Let the eye look on no evil, and it is a sacrifice. It is, isn't it? Our eyes have become accustomed to look at evil. As we walk about the streets, 
and see people and see hoardings as you pick up your newspaper and see. The eye has become accustomed to look at evil and by nature men enjoys that. So when you see the eye looks on no evil, it is a sacrifice. And you remember the wise men in the Old Testament, it's Job, I think, who puts it like this. He said, I made a covenant with my eyes. What he's saying is this. He said, I came to this decision. I made a covenant with my eyes that I'd always look straight ahead. I wouldn't look to the right nor to the left. I wouldn't squint, as it were. I wouldn't use the corner of my eye even to look at evil. That's what Chrysostom is saying. Let the eye look on no evil and it is a sacrifice. Let the tongue utter nothing base, and it is an offering. The tongue likes to utter base things, evil speaking. Language, says the New Testament, which is not convenient. Foolish jesting. Oh, the evil that is wrought by the tongue. James tells us it's a little member, but oh, the trouble it can cause. And the harm that is done by speaking evil things, not only speaking evil about other people, but speaking evil, suggestive things. Now, says Chrysostom, let the tongue utter nothing base, and it is an offering. You're presenting it as an offering to God. Let the hand work no sin, and it is a holocaust. In other words, well, he says it's such a tremendous thing, it's as if you were taking a great offering and burning it up. Holocaust, you're burning up the whole thing. But more, this suffices not. But besides, you see, that was negative. He's using the same division as I've been trying to use. But more, this suffices not. That's not enough. But besides, we must actively exert ourselves for good. The hand giving alms, the mouth blessing them that curse us, the ear error at leisure, for listening to God. You see, you have to stop listening to the raucous voices of the world. All the world's distracting voices, all its enticing tones of ill, at thine accents, mild, melodious, and subdued, and all is still. You stop listening to the world in order that you may begin listening to God. That's presenting your ears, your organs of hearing, as a sacrifice to God. This is, isn't that beautiful? The mouth blessing them that curse us, and the ear ever at leisure for listening to God. That's presenting your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your Service with reason, your mental service, your spiritual worship. A truly spiritual offering to God. And Francis Ridley Havergal, in the hymn we sang just now, has got the same idea. Take my hands and let them move at the impulse of thy love. Take my feet and let them be swift and beautiful for thee. Take my voice and let me sing always only for my king. Take my lips and let them be filled with messages for thee. And so you go through every member of your body and you present it to God in this way. And so you are living a spiritual life, nothing irrational, nothing mutilated, 
Not regarding the body as evil and as something which has to be destroyed. No, no. But regarding it as a gift for God. Not using it for yourself, but using it to him and to his glory and to his praise. Well, my dear friends, there it is. The Apostle puts all that, you see, in one word. Reasonable. Reasonable. May God give us grace to work it out in our understandings and then put it into practice in detail in our daily life. O oh Lord, we do indeed desire to do this very thing. We see how small we are and how slow we are and how dull and foolish we are and how we are ever in danger of running to foolish, irrational extremes. We thank thee therefore more than ever for thy blessed holy word and its teaching. We thank thee for the way in which it restrains us, the way in which it rebukes us, but above all, for the way in which it enlightens us and instructs us and shows us how to live with the whole of our being to thy glory and to thy praise. We therefore would offer our very bodies here and now unto the living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God. This our spiritual sacrifice and worship, and offering of praise. And now may the grace of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ, and the love of God, and the fellowship and the communion of the Holy Spirit, abide and continue with us now this night, throughout the remainder of this, our short and certain earthly life and pilgrimage, and until the great day of redemption, when our very bodies shall be redeemed and glorified, and we shall be faultless and blameless and spotless, perfect in spirit, mind, and body, in thy glorious presence. Amen.